Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pathfinder presented by Payload, the leading digital media company in the space industry. I'm your host, Mo Islam, and today's guest is Clay Mowry, Chief Revenue Officer of Voyager Space. Clay has worked for over 25 years in the commercial launch and satellite sectors. He joined Voyager as Chief Revenue Officer um, back last year, early 2022. He previously served for five years as the VP of Global Sales at Blue Origin, and before that, worked for 15 years as President and Chairman of Ariane Space. There's so much that we go through today and so much to discuss, so I'm going to jump right into it. But first, a word from our sponsors. Spider Oak's Orbit Secure software is designed for hybrid space operators struggling to manage the chaos of securing data flow and access to and from tens of thousands of small satellites in low Earth orbit. Using a unique combination of end-to-end zero-trust encryption and blockchain-distributed ledger, Orbit Secure allows your mission to orchestrate and secure Earth-to-orbit, orbit-to-Earth transmission, communication, and storage of sensitive data across even the most complex and unsecure hybrid space environments. To learn how Orbit Secure can bring zero trust security and resiliency to your zero gravity environments, check out SpiderOak at www.spideroak.com. Clay, welcome to the show. Hey, Mo. Glad to be here. Um, so I, I need to give you some uh, serious credit. So January 2021, um, Ari and I reached out to you asking for a call. And at the time, you're leading global sales at Blue Origin. Um, and you agree to the call, really not knowing who we are and why we're reaching out. Um, but you do, d- you decide to take the time. Um, you hear us out. We pitch payload. At the time, I think maybe we had 500 subscribers. But right. most importantly, you took us really seriously and you offered to help. And fast forward to today. Um, and, you know, I certainly now know how busy you are. At the time, maybe I didn't. But uh, we are super appreciative of the early help that you provided. You're definitely on the, a very short list of folks that helped us out in the early days. So thank you for that. I did want to just say that. Hey, that was my pleasure. I'm super happy to see the growth uh, of Payload and what you guys have done with it. Um, I read it every morning and love it. And uh, you guys are doing a great job. So keep it up. Yeah, well, I certainly appreciate that. So uh, let's, get into, let's get into your background a little bit because you've had a very storied career in space. You've worked at Ariane at Blue, now at Voyager, but maybe let's just start from the beginning. Like what uh, really drove your interest in working in the space industry and what was your career arc? Well, I got into space by accident, actually. Uh, I started at the U.S. Department of Commerce, which is where everybody starts in space, right? That's where you start off the Commerce Department. Uh, I literally got a job in the Office of Aerospace uh, and they gave me the space portfolio. Uh, and this is uh, post, uh, you know, post uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, and one of the objectives at that point was trying to find ways to to bring uh, Russia into the West, right? And so there was a l- set of launch negotiations that were taking place with the newly formed Russian space agency, Roscosmos. And so literally, I think three months into the job, they sent me to Moscow as part of a U.S. team uh, to start working on those negotiations with the Russians. And so uh, it was a really interesting time, right? I was in my 20s, and it, it was fascinating to be in the, what was, you know, for me, the former Soviet Union, like standing in a rocket factory in the Khrunichev facility. Uh, so that's how I kind of got hooked in it. It was astounding to me that that, that was the turn of events. And, and by the way, now, I think almost you know, 25, 30 years later, we've seen the downturn, right? What, what can happen with the, with the uh, conflict in Ukraine? Uh, but uh, it, was, it was a great way to get started in the business. Um, from there, uh, I ended up uh, getting a, a call to from a friend of mine who said, we were starting uh, to form the Satellite Industry Association. There's a group of us who want to start a trade association for the commercial satellite industry. Would you be interested in, in, in helping us set this thing up and running the organization? 
So it was a one resume job search. Uh, I ended up going over and interviewing uh, for the job uh, and uh, so helped found SIA, got to pick out the logo and the colors and, <laughs> and build that thing from scratch, which was great. Um, got to meet all the senior leaders in the satellite communications industry uh, and launch industry and ground equipment industry. So that was a super job for me uh, to get to really know all the players uh, in the business. And then I guess from there, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Doug Hayden, who had been running the U.S. subsidiary for Iron Space, called me up and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to retire uh, in, in a year or two. Uh, would you be interested in, in interviewing for my job running the U.S. subsidiary for Iron Space? Um, and he was a dear friend of mine. He had been on my board at SIA. And uh, I thought, wow, this is like one of the greatest jobs ever. I would get to work for a, a European rocket launch company, go to rocket launches, work with all the satellite customers. And it was a, a, a tremendous job for me for 15 years. Uh, ran uh, Arian Space's Washington office. So at that the, really at, neat. at the time, um, give us a little flavor of like what the commercial space industry was like at the time, right? Like how many? Uh, it was uh, so. I've seen uh, in the course of my career arc, uh, the industry has really evolved tremendously. Right, we went from a place where it was uh, communication satellites, and when I say communication satellites, I mean geo communication satellites were ninety five percent of what would you would call commercial space, right? And so these were Big satellite operators, uh, you know, Intelsat at the time was actually still, uh, uh, you know, an international treaty-based organization, right? And Comsat was the U.S. signatory to it. Um, you know, SES in Europe, uh, in Luxembourg, uh, Utelsat in Paris. These were kind of the huge players in the comms field, and everything revolved around them and transponder pricing in their regions and everything that went to support that, from launch to ground equipment to um, all, all the pieces of that equation. Uh, and then direct to home broadcast satellites, so Direct TV, Dish Network, uh, back in the at, at the time, Alpha Star and uh, uh, B Sky B from Rupert Murdoch and Prime Star from the Cable Guys. That was all just starting to happen, and uh, it was a re- it was a revolution, right? That was the commercial space revolution back then. Was actually bringing satellite technology to consumers uh, instead of the big giant C band antenna in their backyard. Now they had these little pizza pan dishes outside your house. And it became the fastest selling consumer product of all time. And revenue from the industry just uh, exploded because now we were down to the consumer level. So that was fun to see that transition. Uh, but where we are now, I mean, this is the funnest time ever in space. I and mean, this is this is just, uh, I'm like a kid, again, uh, seeing all the investment, all the opportunities, reusable rockets, huge driver for that, lowering the cost of access to space. Uh, but all the activity now where you have commercial actors um, that are some of the largest, if not the largest, I always ask this question when I, when I speak now, who is the largest commercial space or excuse me, largest space player in the world right now? And it's SpaceX for sure. More launches, more satellites. They're doing, doing all of it. So it's amazing to watch. So what, what prompted the uh, move from Ariane to Blue, right? So now you're, uh, you know, Blue, Blue at the time. Well, actually, I don't want to speak for you. So maybe you, you tell us. <laughs> So, um, you know, Blue had been super secretive for, for over 10 years and, and kind of people inside the industry knew something was going on in West Texas and up in Seattle, uh, but nobody was quite sure what, because there was no sign on the outside of the building. Nobody really knew who worked there. Um, people knew Jeff Bezos was doing something, but uh, really uh, the only information you could get from it is looking at like kind of public filings. And there were some journalists that were sniffing out some things that he was doing. I knew um, Patty Gray Smith, who the Patty Gray Smith Fellowship is, is named after. She was uh, former head of uh, uh, 
Department of Transportation, FAA, uh, Office of Commercial Space. Um, she had left that job and was consulting to them. And so she was kind of hinting to me that there was cool stuff going on there. Another friend of mine, Brett Alexander, was working for him. And uh, they asked me if I'd be willing to um, to talk to people at Blue. And so I, I had a lunch with Rob Meyerson, who was the president of Blue. I flew out to Seattle. I met them. Um, and it was about 500 people at that point, um, Blue Origin. And New Shepard uh, was just... Uh, starting to fly. Um, so that was pretty cool. And they were putting videos out on that. So that was pretty neat. You could see that they had done something with a kind of small and mighty band of engineers to, uh, to launch and then actually land a booster. Uh, so that was their calling card. And I went out to the factory in Kent, and I walked the floor, um, met with their team. Uh, and it was super exciting to me, right? That was just like a really neat thing to watch them trying to make reusable launch systems. Uh, and I was a launch guy at heart, right? I've been 15 years doing the launch thing. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was one of those things where um, you kind of got to decide, right? Like, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. So, it was really neat for me um, to go work for Blue and and build their... Uh, Rob always jokes with me that I, like, sent him, sent him like a manifesto when I started. Like, here's all the stuff I want to do. What can we do? How do we approach the markets? And let's go. And so, yeah. I think that that helped me get hired there. <laughs> I love that. Um, so, uh, was there any like single person or group of people at Blue that uh, really helped you ultimately make that decision, or was the factory tour enough to to, to know that there was something big going on? Uh, well, there was a, a few folks. Um, Ariane Cornell was there, and she had was the former head of uh, SGAC, uh, Space Generation Advisory Council, who I'd known for um, several years. I was on her board of advisors. Uh, I always tell this story about how. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, I was hoping to recruit her when I was in space to come and work for the company. Uh, and in fact, she recruited me to come to Blue. Uh, <laughs> and she now has my old job at Blue. So it's an interesting, uh, I think it's like a judo move, right? Where you use your <laughs> opponent's way to get to. Uh, but uh, Ariane was, uh, was uh, I think we, we had a, um, a cookout on the roof of her uh, building in Seattle. Uh, uh, downtown, beautiful summer day. You know, Seattle in the summertime is the most glorious place on earth. You know, you're looking at snow-capped mountains and uh, the, the ocean, and uh, it's just spectacular. And so uh, she and uh, Sam Gunderson, who's now back at Johnson Space Center, Brett Alexander, a couple other colleagues there, uh, putting the hard sell on me to come to Blue. And so it was an incredible experience for me, tremendous opportunity. We got to um, sell New Glenn, uh, enter it into the marketplace. And then um, before I left, I got to work on all the New Shepard astronaut missions. And so uh, leading all the sales activities for that. And so that was super fun. Uh, to run the auction, set an anchor price, and then uh, you know sell uh, the early seats. I think we sold over $100 million worth of, um, worth of capability there in just a couple of months. So that was a really neat thing to see. And then to watch those astronauts fly uh, you know, for those early missions. And I got to train as an astronaut. It was really neat. And one of the guys I sold uh, a seat to, my team sold a seat to, was named Dylan Taylor, who flew and who's now my boss. So, it, you know, one thing leads to another. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to get to that in just a second. I actually do have one one qu- question on the auction because now that you bring it up. Uh, so what was the pr- the first um, auction price? I, I don't remember it exactly, but it was, I remember many millions. So the idea was really, and this is, it, it, you know, I, when I tell this story, I'm, I'm kind of astounded because I'm a bit of a student of economics. I took economics, it was my minor in undergrad and then I got an MBA. And so I'm, I'm always fascinated about economics and how things work. And I was familiar with auction theory, right, which is a, a whole school of thought and uh, academic thought. 
that uh, um, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, used quite uh, deftly in, in auctioning Spectrum, right, for communication satellites, other activities, all the all the cell phone spectrum that's out there. Um, they've auctioned all this stuff and made billions and billions of dollars for the U.S. Treasury. And uh, a woman who used to live, she was my you know, backyard neighbor just across this, uh, behind my house, across the street, a woman named Margie Weiner, And I always joke that she, she should have been the highest paid federal employee ever because she was the one who ran the auction process at the FCC. She was in charge of auctions at the FCC. And uh, auctions, uh, like I say, was a, it's an amazing way if you have a scarce resource or a limited finite resource and you want to um, get the most value for that that you, you create an auction where people are kind of lining up to bid on something that's scarce. Um, and so the question was, how do we, uh, how do we get enter into the market, right? Without just picking a price out of thin air and how do we enter that market anchored high and then work our way down the curve uh, into something more affordable? Because when things debut, there's always a lot of excitement around them. People are willing to pay more. You want to get a return on that invested capital and then, Get the right price, right, for what the marketplace um, could bear, and so uh, there were a couple guys at, at Blue that um, that uh, um, uh, came up with this idea of doing an auction, and so it was really neat to watch it come to life, put in place, uh, to do the auction itself. And I can tell you, we were all quite pleasantly uh, surprised and happy that um, somebody was willing to pay twenty eight million dollars for the first flight to fly with Jeff. Jeff yeah, so twenty. I mean, twenty eight million dollars, big number. What was the uh I mean, did that just like completely blow away expectations? Was that even in the ballpark yeah. of any of, of the highest guess? Uh, it was. Uh, I you know, we, we I'll say we were running a little bit of a pool inside, and there, nobody was close to that number. <laughs> yeah, I can I can only imagine. I actually remember watching yeah. it live and just be completely like blown away. Um, but yeah, that's that was obviously an amazing amazing feat. So you're now the chief uh, chief revenue officer of a company called Voyager. Um, maybe t- tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what does Voyager do and, uh, you know, what ultimately made you decide to join the company? Sure. Voyager, uh, is a really interesting company. It's about five years old now. In the last, uh, roughly four years, we've, we've acquired seven different companies, small, small space companies with interesting technologies. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, these include things like satellite communications, subsystems, you know, software defined radios, uh, um, star trackers. Uh, this is a company called Space Micro out in California. Propulsion technology. So we have throttled solid rocket propulsion technology, which I didn't even know you could do before I got here. I was like, that's impossible. And then they showed me that they can do it. Um, they also do uh, airborne uh, ISR technology uh, for defense, um, engineering design and integration capabilities. Um, so uh, that's uh, Zinn, a company we acquired in Ohio. There's a lot of that work, uh, as does Nanoracks. Uh, we do um, uh, launch. We, you know, we launch a lot of small payloads from the ISS and other platforms. Um, we do a lot of payload and mission management, um, advanced interface technologies like electro permanent non mechanical docking systems, Altius space machines. Uh, we do coatings and things like that. Pioneer. I, t- I talk about it like a space chemistry company. Uh, really fascinating the stuff that they've developed. Um, uh, on the chem- chemistry side, uh, airlocks. You know, we have the Bishop airlock that's flying on the on board the ISS right now. Uh, did a did a trash run with it, but you can use it to deploy satellites and has external positions. So, really interesting. But probably the most exciting thing we're working on is is Starlab, which is a commercial space station, which would be um, the follow on to the ISS uh, when it's decommissioned uh, around the end of the decade. So we're really excited 
about um, putting together, and we got the largest of three awards under the Commercial Leo Destinations Program for NASA right. to put that together. So that's been a, a good chunk of my time has been working on that as well. So a couple of initial questions. So um, on Voyager, just as a taking a step back, um, it sounds what you're describing. It sounds like a, it's almost like a holding company of sorts. Um, that was what that was the model as we started. It was a holding company model. Now we're focused on becoming more of an operating company, and so we're focused on three segments: um, uh, exploration, uh, so kind of civil space and exploration capabilities, uh, technology, which can be across different customer segments, but. You know, some of the satellite and docking technologies I mentioned, some of the coding and other technologies. And then uh, on the national security side, defense, um, which is uh, a lot of propulsion, but it's also some other stuff that, you know, I can't talk about too much. But, sure. Yeah. Well, uh, so, well uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about Dylan Taylor, right? So you, sure. so he's one of the uh, the uh, early customers of, of New Shepard, New Glenn, but he's also, yeah. he's been in the industry for a while. So um, tell, tell us what, what, what I think would be most relevant for folks to know about Dylan. Why did he start Voyager? Um, any insight there would be interesting. Uh, he started it with uh, a guy named Matt Kuda, who's a, uh, Matt was a, a um, fighter pilot, U.S. Air Force Academy grad. And the two of them um, were excited about space, wanted to get into this industry, um, wanted to, uh, make a difference and really wanted to um, build infrastructure uh, that was going to grow the new space economy, right? That was kind of their their vision. Uh, and Dylan is is amazing guy to work for, super high energy uh, thought leader. Um, you know, he's uh, he's a runner, athlete. Um, keeping up with him is 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 something. Uh, but I, I love working with the guy. He's uh, it's infectious, right? His enthusiasm for the space business. Um, and, and yeah, he, he flew on New Shepard. He climbed Kilimanjaro last year. I mean, he, he, he's got this adventure spirit, I think, in him. Um, and, and he loves space and what space can do. You know, he's also a philanthropist. So he, he has space for humanity where, um, you know, he felt strongly when he flew that he wanted to enable other folks that couldn't afford it. Right. He's, he's done well in his career and could afford to buy a ticket on New Shepard. But he wanted to try to figure out a way to get people to space who, who couldn't afford it. And so, he, you know, to basically uh, pay it forward kind of thing. And so he's established that and now has flown some folks to space on New Shepard. And, and you know, kudos to him for, for thinking about it that way, that um, having that overview effect, you know, to go above the carbon line, look down on the planet and, and get people who, who don't have the means to do it, um, that's important. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really great working with him and, uh, and the vision that he and Matt Kuda have for the company. Right. Can you just to keep in theme? Can you share a little bit about who who was it at Voyager that convinced you to come over? Uh, so, <laughs> so it's mostly Dylan, but um, I knew uh, Eric Stalmer is an old friend of mine. Uh, if anybody knows Eric, he's a um, you know a, a really a, a consummate professional here in Washington D.C. Uh, ran the Commercial Space Flight Federation before he came to Voyager. Um, I met him a long time ago when I was running the Satellite Industry Association. He was running the Space Transportation Association. Um, and, and working launch and I was working satellite and, and as it turned out, he came over to meet me for lunch. And as the story's told, uh, he saw a poster on my wall, uh, from Albany, New York and asked me if I was from Albany. I said, yeah, I'm from Albany. He said, well, I'm kind of from Albany. And then we said, well, we're really from Schenectady. And so I'm kind of from Schenectady. Well, really I'm from Niskayuna. Well, I'm from Niskayuna. So it turns out we grew up in the same hometown. So oh, we're wow. a fast friend from there. Uh, and Eric, uh, Dylan had brought in Eric to do, uh, lead the government relations and government affairs team here. And so, uh, Eric was also instrumental in, in convincing me to come over. And I, I've been friends with a guy for 20 something years. 
um, never worked in the same company or office with him. And so um, now the problem is that whenever we're together, it's kind of hard to get work done because <laughs> we're always talking old stories and riffing. And uh, but he's he's a great guy, and I love Eric. Yeah. Well, uh, let, let's let's. Um, you mentioned Star Lab, so let's talk a little bit more about that. So, uh, I, I think one one of the things that I've I've uh, I get a lot right, whether it's talking to investors or just folks who are new to the industry, um, especially when it comes, you know, it's just like, hey, what, what what are some of the exciting parts of the industry that I should pay attention to? And and I, I, one of the areas I typically talk about is space you know, infrastructure in space, right? Or big infrastructure in space, having a platform for for um, for humans to be up in space and be you know, doing research and manufacturing and, you know, there's, uh, there's congressional directives to, to sustain human presence in, in low earth orbit. And, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of things to point to for, for why we should be up there and the importance of being up there from a science and exploration perspective. But where I, uh, where, um, the, you know, typically the next question is, well, what's the business case, right? I understand why governments need to be doing this. I understand why, you know, governmental agencies and why, you know, the ISS was, you know, arguably one of the largest scientific collaborations, um, international scientific collaborations in the world. But why, why get commercial players involved, right? So, from your perspective, right, what is the business case behind StarLab? Sure. Let me let me start at the beginning, which is, you know, we'll go to space to benefit life on Earth, right? Like that's the that's the goal, and um, we need to learn how to have a continuous human human presence in space. We need to learn how to live and work in space. Um, and we need to learn how to um, uh, basically build a, sca- a space economic system, right, that functions. Uh, and to do all that, we need space stations, right? Um, uh, yeah, we need to go back to the moon. Absolutely. Artemis is cool. When we want to go to Mars, we want to go become a multi-planet species. But um, those are longer-term goals. And in the near term, having um, a space station, plural, right, with another S, uh, space stations uh, up there and operating is super important to the work we're doing. And, and remember back that I think the ISS has been up there for about 23 years, something like that, continuous uh, operations in space. Um, so it was not designed originally, right, as this giant functioning laboratory. Um, and now they've, they've made it into a laboratory, but it's been up there for a while. And if you think about the timing of that, knowing that it probably took about 10 years to engineer the technologies and then put the thing in orbit and pieces. And so you're talking about 30-year-old technology. Right. So it's now time for a refresh, reboot, uh, Space Station 2.0, whatever you want to call it. Um, we need to, uh, or maybe it's 3.0 if you, if you say Skylab was the first one, right, that we did launch on a Saturn. So um, we, we need to be up there and do this work. Um, and we want to focus, I think, primarily to start on the space agency customers that are out there around the world, NASA, ESA, uh, JAXA, the international partners, uh, allied nations um, that want to do work in space. Um, and we want to design a laboratory uh, and habitat uh, that's world class, that's geared for research, that allows us to do a lot of great science uh, and advance um, technology in space. So that's really our goal with Star Lab. Um, we have uh, a huge amount of volume uh, um, that we're talking about. Um, so our, our premise starts with a single launch. So we actually launch this thing as a stack. We're going to take advantage of a large, super heavy lift launch capability that's out in the marketplace um, where you can launch a huge stack uh, in one spot. And much like if you want to actually think about it, like Skylab, it's kind of like that, right? Launched in one giant stack where we have a power propulsion element, an equipment bay with docking ports, and then a big laboratory and habitat on top. Um, and so uh, roughly seven, eight meters in diameter uh, on top uh, that will uh, have 40% of the volume that flies today on the ISS and 100% 
of the research capability of the ISS today. So um, save a lot of money by getting it launched in one shot, which is a unique feature for us. Um, we're working with Hilton uh, Worldwide Hotels and Resorts to design the interior of it. Uh, everybody's like, oh, space hotel. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to the space hotel piece. But to start, let's just talk about the astronaut experience for the customers, right? Well, how do we, how do we, how do we create a space that's comfortable for living and working? And when you have a huge diameter uh, of an, an amount of volume, uh, you can do different things than what we do now on the space station. And so Hilton has a ton of technology and expertise. Uh, you guys, you know, everybody stays in Hilton hotels and resorts. I think they have uh, over a million hotel rooms, uh, 17 different brands on here on the ground uh, that they and people stay in, you know, from Doubletree to Conrad to Hilton's. So these guys look at things like uh, antimicrobial materials, sleeping, the smells, the cuisine, the food, like everything that goes into, um, you know, keeping your stay uh, and having it be, um, you know, uh, invigorating and fresh and getting a good night's sleep and all these things. We want to bring that into space um, and working with Hilton. So we've had some great uh, interchanges. They were at our systems requirements review in NASA uh, in June. We took them down to Ken uh, Johnson Space Center with us. And so they're a great partner as well. So we want to make this a a much better experience in space. We want to put the kind of capabilities on board Stout Lab to be able to do biopharma, to do manufacturing space, do these other things. Um, so I think that, you know, our premise is start from there and then grow into things like tourism and, and uh, commercial astronaut missions. Uh, you know, we want to empower smaller countries and agencies that haven't gone to space to get into space. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot there to do, but we see it as a really a step-by-step -step progression. Right, along that line. And the, and the primary focus to start is space agencies and the research that they do, uh, you know, that's government, a lot of it's government sponsored, some of it's commercially sponsored, and really building a world class, uh, uh, basically science uh, park in space, right, that we can do that work on. Yeah, so if I hear, if I hear you on this, uh, it sounds like um, the near term kind of low hanging fruit is just, you know, as the ISS decommissions naturally over time, that just pulling in some of that, you know, quote unquote revenue stream, right? Of of agencies doing science and science and uh, research, um, what they do on the ISS already today, and just shifting that over to to Star Lab, right, on day one. And then over that, time, absolutely the plan. So what's great about uh, you know Voyage and our approach to this, we have Nanorex, which flies has flown more payloads on the ISS than any other company in the world, more commercial missions, right, than any other country. And we've a company we've launched satellites. Uh, we have the Bishop Airlock on there, so we have all this experience actually doing science and payloads for customers all around the world. And so we can do that now, right up until the ISS is decommissioned, and then we can migrate a lot of that work onto the StarLab platform, and and hopefully uh, with a much easier user interface. I mean, we're we're going to try to take advantage of the broadband constellations like Starlink and. And Kuiper that get launched, uh, or or some of the other ones, Geo and Mio systems are out there. We haven't decided yet, but we, we think there's a plethora of uh, of communications options that will allow people to manage uh, payloads and us to get data up and down. You know, you think about things like edge computing and AI. Gosh, the stuff we can do now that we could build in to a space station platform uh, is extraordinary in terms of the the data and the ability to actually work with data and manipulate experiments and research projects in space. So if you, if you leverage the new technology, and by the way, you know, we're about you know, five, six years from getting this thing up. We're going to have it up before the ISS is decommissioned. Think about all the things just in the last couple of years with AI, right, that nobody was thinking about now, things that we'll be able to do 
when we employ this thing and, and put it into orbit. So we're very excited about that future, um, but we don't want to, um, you know, get too too far out over our skis um, with uh, some of the, the storylines here. We're going to start with what we know, um, what we know are research markets that are proven, and then and then build on those. But if we can build in capability into the system and take advantage of these technology uh, evolution revolutions, uh, I think we're going to we're going to find a great market for it. Why was it um, important to partner with Airbus here? Yeah. So uh, Airbus um, came to us, gosh, it was over a year ago, and they had been working on a concept called SciHab for the European Space Agency. So Europe, Europe wants to play a role. They want a human spaceflight program. Uh, they, they, you know, fly obviously ESA astronauts uh, uh, um, to the ISS with great fanfare when these guys come back. Uh, Alexander Gerst from Germany, or or uh, Thomas Pesquet from France, or Tim Peake, or Christine. I mean, like these people are superstars when they get back on Earth, right? Like, so they they see the value uh, in in the mission sets, the payloads, the science that they're able to do up there. And so for us, it's super important to bring Europe in as as a partner. In, in, into StarLab, right? Because we have the ISS today. There's a intergovernmental agreement that exists, right? So ESA is partnered with NASA. They have the Columbus module in orbit, just as JAXA does, or the Canadian robotic arm. So we have an international partnership. How do we recreate that commercially, right? Instead of space agencies, this is a commercial space station. How do we bring them in? And so they had this SIHAB concept. They came to us and said, hey, um, could we do something with StarLab? This is really an interesting prospect. And so we started talking to them. And the more we talked to them, the more we loved what they were doing and what they had designed. Uh, we brought them in uh, to start and we announced um, uh, in January of this year that they were providing us with engineering uh, services, support technology. Uh, and the more we worked with them, we said, we really need to stand up a joint venture uh, to make this thing real. And so um, we were happy to announce this past month, a joint venture with Airbus, where they're going to be investing in it along with Voyager. Uh, we'll, Obviously, it'd be U.S.-led, U.S.-majority-owned, uh, all those things that we need to do and um, you know, uh, to, to be under contract with NASA. But it, what it gives us is a really nice avenue into European uh, markets and European space agencies and European Space Agency itself, ESA. So those agencies, right, I mean, you think about it, they don't just want to write a check to America, right? They, they want to have jobs. They want to have technology development programs that they can hang their hat on and, and show the taxpayers in Europe that, that they're investing in this stuff and getting a return on it. And so this gives them that avenue, um, gives them a stake in a space station, space agents, uh, space station that's flying. And so that's super important. Uh, and we're really excited to have them. Uh, they're a great partner for us. Obviously it's Airbus. They know how to build stuff and fly stuff. They got amazing heritage. Uh, and so, uh, it's really wonderful to be working with them. Uh, and you know, stay tuned to this channel. We'll, we'll figure out some other partners we'll bring in. <laughs> you're, 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 yeah. I'm on the edge of my seat. Hey, you're, you're, you're welcome to tell us now if, if you want. We'll hold off, but I, I, I do want to actually talk about cost structure in just a second, but we're going to take a quick break um, and we will be right back. So stay with us. Space is the new frontier for cybersecurity. To quote the commander of the U.S. Space Forces Operations Command, Cyber threats are unfortunately the soft underbelly of our global space networks. SpiderOak, the leader in space cybersecurity software, is dedicated to providing space operators with the solutions they need to protect hybrid space systems. Their Orbit Secure software uses a unique combination of end-to-end zero-trust encryption and blockchain-distributed ledger, allowing missions to orchestrate and secure Earth-to-orbit, 
orbit-to-Earth transmission, communication, and storage of sensitive data across even the most complex and unsecure LEO and hybrid space systems. To learn how Orbit Secure can bring zero-trust security and resiliency to your zero-gravity environments, check out SpiderOak at www.spideroak.com. Mike, welcome back. So I want to, last we left off, we were going to talk about cost. um, And, you know, let's maybe just start off with the ISS, right? The ISS costs $100 billion to build. Um, In some, for some, uh, if you include the cost of the shuttle, $150 billion, right? Um, that's obviously not what Starlab is going to cost, right? But so, so, so tell us, so, so tell us a little bit about like why it, it's now starting to make sense commercially to build something like this, which was historically such a massive capex endeavor. Sure, um, yeah, and the, what we're talking about here, uh, I'm not going to give you an exact number, but it's a tiny fraction of what right. that 100 billion dollars is. So, um, and and why do I say that? So, uh, a couple of things. One is. Uh, the price of, of access to space has come down considerably uh, over the last 10 years. And um, I used to, I've written a couple papers on this when I was at Iron Space in Blue and authored some, some, some journal articles on it. Um, and you can use different metrics to look at the price per kilogram. But um, what we're doing now is taking advantage of these very, very large rockets. We're taking advantage of reusable rockets for crew and cargo capability. Um, but even with some of the expendable, expendable vehicles, the price has come down considerably. And so that's one piece of it. Um, a single launch space station is a second piece of it, right? That we're going to save, um, depending on what your metric you're comparing it to. But uh, let's say a space station that would take uh, three or four launches to get in orbit, right? Well, if you do it with single launch, you're saving a half a billion dollars easy uh, on the launch piece alone. Um, as, as opposed, I can't remember how many, I should know this off the top of my head. How many shuttle missions did it take to put the ISS together dozens I'm sure yeah uh, yeah. yeah I'm not sure what the exact number is but it's got it's it's got to be something like that yeah so um, we're trying to do something that's fully integrated on the ground we got the whole thing set up we stack it uh, in a very large uh, super heavy rocket we put it into space and uh, and it's ready to go and then we can access that and and even the cargo uh, resupply and and crew systems uh, uh, are really, you know, that th- those, those numbers are coming down as well. Um, you know, I was, I was in India, uh, a couple of months ago and we announced in July, um, uh, an agreement with the Indian space research organization to work with them, uh, on their Gaganyan, uh, uh system, which is a, a, a capsule kind of similar in size to a dragon or Soyuz that they're developing for, you know, first for cargo and then for crew, uh, that we would love to be able to utilize as well. And so actually open up having India, Right, being able to be a, a human spacefaring uh, country. They, you know, congratulations, by the way, to them for having just uh, uh, landed uh, on, on the moon and have a rover now on the moon. It's incredible. Um, super amazing accomplishment for a, a country whose space budget is like 120th of NASA. And, and, have, and they're able to, yeah. Have you seen all those, like, uh, there's a lot of, bunch of these, like, memes going around social media about how they spent, like, less than the cost of, like, cost uh, of, like, uh, the Interstellar movie to produce, right? <laughs> I have not seen that, but it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> but, there's, but there's a bunch wow. of these, like, like comparing the cost versus, like, other things, and it puts it into, like, perspective, and you're like, holy shit. <laughs> you know, Chairman Samanoff, uh, who heads, uh, who heads uh, ISRO, is a friend of mine. I served with him on the IF Bureau, and, um, and uh, he, he's, uh, he's basically the father of the, of the GSLV Mark III rocket. And uh, uh, he's an amazing guy. And, and when you go over there, you see how proud they are, right, of, of their accomplishments and their program. And they should be. They're rightly 
should be proud of what they've been able to do on really kind of a shoestring budget. Uh, um, it's, it's really amazing what they've done. And people always said to me, oh, you know, ISRO and India, whatever. I said, do you realize when I was at Arian Space, they were our, our single largest customer in the world? People said, what do you mean? I said, Arian Space launched more of their satellites for communications over, over India than any customer in the world. I mean, you know, every year we had um, another ISRO uh, satellite to go up into space to provide uh, comm services in India. They're, they're tremendously successful. And so anyways, but that's just an example of if you can leverage a low-cost uh, capability, right? Um, and by the way, the other thing is these super uh, heavy rockets in gender, which is it used to be as a launch guy, right? So launch guys like myself, I still think of myself as a launch guy, even now I'm more of a space station and infrastructure guy. Launch guys think in terms of mass, right? We think about how, how, how heavy is it? How many kilograms? What's the orbit? What's the delta V? How much energy is going to take me to get from here to there? Satellite guys thinks in terms of power, irradiated power, right? How much EIRP, how much irradiated power can I drop on whatever it is so that the antenna size can be small, right? And that you can, we can close the link budget. Um, so now you've got a, this thing where, and, and where SpaceX, I think, and, and, and Blue Origin is going to be in this space soon with these big rockets with, with New Glenn and, and with Starship, where, you know, mass to LEO is not really the driver at all, right? I mean, these are rockets that can deliver somewhere between 40 and 100, maybe even more than 100 metric tons to low Earth orbit. This is, this is incredible, right, what they're able to achieve. And I, I learned this lesson when I was at Blue. I knew it from Arian Space, but it really, and the, the, here's how I tell the story. At Arian, when I was at Arian Space and we went from Arian 4 to Arian 5, we went from a 4.2 meter fairing, payload fairing, right, the, the nose cone of the rocket, to a 5 meter fairing. And everybody said to us, Oh, five meter fairing. Nobody's going to build satellites to fit in a five meter fairing because all the other rockets had a four meter fairing, right? So nobody wants to build a larger satellite that you're the only launch guy that could put it into orbit, right? So we were told this repeatedly, like it's never going to work, five meter fairing, you know, because Proton and the other vehicles, Atlas and the other vehicles that are in the market. And of course, as soon as we built it, people started building bigger satellites that would fit in the fairing because right? they want more power, they want more capability in the satellite. And where it really came home to me was when we were building New Glenn. And I was, when I got there and the first renderings of New Glenn, if you see it, has a five meter fairing, right? Even though the vehicle is, is, um, is, uh, is about, you know, eight meters in diameter, right? And so I, I, I asked the engineers, well, why are we doing this? And I got the same feedback, which was, well, everybody else flies a five meter fairing. So we would start there and then ultimately over time we grow. So I, I, I remember going to the management and talking to all the leaders in the company and going, I know this might cost a little more because we already started designing the payload fairing. By the way, they built several payload fairings from New Glenn already down in Florida. Uh, it's one of the first things that they did. They, uh, they, I said, can we, can we really look at building to the full diameter of the vehicle? And we wrote a memo and we did it and we, we got it approved. And now, and where it really came home, Mo, to hit me was when we were talking to the Constellation guys. Um, so Kuiper and uh, uh, Lightspeed, which is Telesat's uh, venture, OneWeb, or the other guys that are in the marketplace that are looking to launch constellations to satellites. And volume is their driver. Right? How many satellites can they stuff into a payload fairing to complete that orbital plane? And it really becomes a driver when you talk about these mega constellations, right? It becomes such a bigger deal for them um, because it's so much more efficient on the launch piece. The more satellites, and if you can complete that plane in one launch or two launches, 
uh, it, it drives the economy down. The, the economies for deploying spacecraft goes down by like 40 to 50%. And it, it's incredible when you think that as an operator. So that's what we're trying to do is take advantage of that volume in these vehicles with this, you know, seven, eight, nine meter capability. And, you know, six, you know, the hook height is something like 16, 17 meters on these vehicles. It's huge. You can put school buses in there. You know, I mean, massive, massive, massive fairings. Yeah. So, so you're alluding to something that I've been thinking about for quite some time and I believe in, which is that uh, vehicles like Starship and New Glenn are going to dramatically change mass and design constraints for the industry. And exactly. people are, people are just going to build differently. And I, I'm, the question I have for you is like, do you think the industry is ready or folks are like, I mean, I actually appreciate the fact that you, that this is a, a you know, a, a, a way of thinking that Voyager is already clearly like le- leveraging and leaning into. But do you feel like the industry kind of knows what's coming? Like that we're going to be able to have this massive and then all of a sudden you don't need to buy the super expensive solar panel. You can get away with buying the terrestrial solar panel because yes, it's thicker, but you can fly it because you don't have to worry about cons- those types of constraints anymore. Yeah. So the answer is yes. And I've ha- I actually had that, you know, in the, my last two jobs, I've had this discussion with people who build antenna, like exactly what you're talking about. Like how, how do we just build a much simpler instead of one of these unfurlable, you know, sorry, Viasat and not throwing shade, but you know, like instead of some crazy unfurlable antenna, you have a clamshell antenna that just deploys and boom. And in fact, when I was at, when I was at blue, we did a study with, with, uh, with, uh, Harris on that, on that topic to actually look at what a much simpler, uh, um, you know, clamshell kind of antenna that could deploy would look like. And it takes a lot of technical risk and complication and cost out of the equation uh, that you can get very large antennas inside of these structures. That's, a, that's just one example. Um, uh, of, of, but to your point, I think um, smart people are thinking about this. Um, it's, it, it is a little bit, for, for somebody like myself who's been in this for over 25 years, when you think about space, and I we always think about designing, you know, and this is the same thing, by the way, when you think about stainless steel structures versus inflatable structures. So if you're going to Mars, inflatables make a heck of a lot of sense, right? Because you're, you know, it's a lot of energy. It's a long transit time. You need a lot of um, propulsion capability to get you to Mars. Um, so weight mass matters, right? Like the mass of your, your system matters. And so inflatables are so much more lightweight. They make a lot of, uh, of sense for that kind of application um, or for, for even for the moon. But when you're going to Leo, uh, you know, stainless steel is just great, right? Like it's, it's simple. It's a lot easier to manufacture and deal with. And so if you take away some of these, these mass and volume uh, design constraints, what you're talking about, it really allows you to think differently and it really changes the economics of what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. people who are smart are thinking about that. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's as I say, it's blow-minding. It's not mind-blowing. Yeah. It's blow-minding because you, you've got to <laughs> really think about it differently. <laughs> I'm going to use that one. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, last question on Starlab, um, you know, and then this one, uh, you know, is about competition. And, uh, you know, uh, part of this hits close to home, right? Because Blue Origin is is thinking about and working on Orbital Reef. There's Axiom with Axiom Station. Um, there's, uh, there's Northrop Grumman. They're building their own commercial space station. How do you think about you know, competitive landscape in the, in, in, you know, space station, um, uh, infrastructure. And is there a value to being first, meaning first to be operational, first to be, um, live and generating revenue? 
Yeah, I, I would say first, um, it's clear NASA wants competitors in the marketplace, just like they have for resupply uh, and, and what they're trying to achieve in crew. Uh, and so um, we know that going in that, that they want at least two, if not more, uh, you know, one of many. And I think competition is a good thing. I mean, I always think competition is a good thing. Um, and it, it drives you to be a better um, provider, uh, more capable, and it makes you move faster, right? If you're, if you're a slow uh, moving, you know, bureaucracy of a monopoly, it's, it's, it's no fun. So we expect there to be other competing uh, space stations. People are taking different approaches to it. Um, you know, we think, uh, in terms of our design approach, our single launch configuration, our, our focus on core markets to start and then, um, progressively growing, through that, that we have a, a, a good solution, right? We, we, we think we have really probably the most streamlined solution to getting to space uh, and getting operational and doing it um, uh, in time to, uh, to take over the capabilities, uh, you know, from the ISS. So that's our goal. And, you know, I don't spend a lot of time, to be honest with you, thinking about my competitors night and day. I think about us trying to execute on, uh, on what we're trying to do now, uh, leverage the capabilities we have, um, work with the right partners, um, and get to space and make sure that we're there on time. I think the, you know, the biggest problem in space is that things always slip to the right, right? So how do you, how do you build something that is um, doable, achievable, um, that has really interesting and neat design features that advance the state of the art, but are not uh, unobtainium or things that are going to take you 10 years to develop and um, are outside the box, right? So leverage the technologies that are there. Try to take a design philosophy that's straightforward, um, and then um, we'll we'll iterate right into over time, and I'm hoping that you know the Star Lab that we're building for to serve these space agency customers is the first of many. We think with our design approach and the launch approach that we could we could build more than one Star Lab, and so uh, I think that's part of our value proposition as well. So you know that's what we focus on. Um, you know, uh, good luck to my competitors. We expect others to be in the marketplace, and I think that's that's a better world, right? It's better space. Yeah. Maybe it's a better out of this world uh, place to be. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so, just switching gears for a second, I do want to talk about IAF because um, you're you play a big role there, um, and it's an important organization. Um, so, maybe talk a little bit about what is your involvement. Well, actually, what is IAF? IAF, excuse me. What is your involvement, and uh, you know um, the, the the work that you're doing over there. So, the IAF is the International Astronautical Federation. Uh, it's a Paris-based nonprofit organization. It's been around since the early 50s. Uh, and it was formed originally kind of as the Cold War uh, was uh, was getting colder, getting hotter. I don't know what's, what, what happens with the Cold War. Uh, when it was at its higher tension point uh, in the 50s, it was, a, it was a great place to bring together East and West to have dialogues about uh, peaceful use of, of, of space and to build uh, trust and relationships in countries could understand what the others were doing and it created a forum for, for people to get together, spacefaring nations to get together and exchange ideas. Uh, now, um, we are the world's, I say we because I'm now the president, I was elected to a three-year term uh, in Dubai. Uh, and uh, uh, so I'm, I'm well into my first year here. And now Paris was my first official uh, International Astronautical Congress, which is uh, the world's biggest international space conference that's put on every year. Uh, it's kind of like the Space Olympics. Some people call it the Space Olympics because uh, we get people from uh, over 100 countries to come from around the world. Uh, and we have an opening ceremony and a closing ceremony and all this stuff that goes with it. So um, it's a fantastic forum. It's built on a technical program. We have a huge technical 
program for thousands and thousands of abstracts are submitted. Um, huge volunteer core that looks at the technical papers. And then we built a kind of a trade show on top of that, right? An exhibition and ability for companies to come together and have a value proposition to meet space agency leaders from all around the world. So right now, um, we have uh, 476 members from 75 different countries. Uh, so uh, uh, it's, it's definitely the most international of space uh, organizations. We had 9,000 people, that 9,600 people came to Paris. Uh, we're going to be in Baku, Azerbaijan, uh, in, uh, gosh, about six weeks from now, um, which is going to be super fun. I went and visited the site. It's absolutely spectacular, the buildings, the venues. Um, uh, and I, I got to catch the F1 race when I was there. It was super fun. I really had a great time. Uh, the year after, we're going to um, Milan in Italy. And then the year after that, we go to Sydney, Australia. So, um, and we also just did, um, you know, in Norway, I was up in Norway um, earlier this year in the spring, we did our first conference on, on climate change uh, and how space is involved in climate and in, in understanding climate change and mitigating the effects of climate change. And so we do regional conferences around the world. And then we do this kind of space Olympics every year. Uh, it's an extraordinary organization. I, if, if people, listeners have not gone or don't know anything about it, it's, it's really an amazing place. I've been doing it for 20 plus years. I was kind of Super honored to be uh, to be elected the president. You know, it's it's a little bit different to have an American as president, and it's a little bit different to have somebody from industry. I'd say a lot of bit different. I, I, there's only been I think one or two of us in the seventy plus years of the organization, so I'm I'm honored uh, to be in that position. Uh, love my space community there, and uh, it's a great it's a great event. And if you want to come and see the international space community, it's the place to come. Hey, I want to I want to um, touch on something you just mentioned. Uh, which is, you know, you're, well, look, you, you, you've had a, you've had a storied career, so it's no surprise to me that uh, you're in that role. Um, but, you know, you're kind of alluding a little bit to some cultural changes that have occurred um, in industry, right? So um, we could, we could talk about that for hours, but I'm more just curious, like, what are some of the biggest cultural changes you've noticed in, in your time in the space industry from when you've entered to for, from where it is right now? If you can summarize that in like a minute or two. <laughs> So culturally, uh, a uh, uh, we're we're still striving. We got a long way to go, but we're way more diverse than we used to be. Right, and when I say diversity, uh, we talk about three G diversity at the IEF, which is um, gender, uh, geography, and generation. But um, it's more than that. And and so, you know, I've been involved and, and been fortunate to be involved in a lot of the the youth movement in space. So a lot of these organizations, as, as I mentioned, the Space Generation Advisory Council or is on the board. Future Space Leaders Foundation, which I which I uh, helped to found with a couple of friends of mine, um, you know, uh, at the beginning of the Matthew Isakowitz and the Brooke Owens Fellowship programs, um, both domestically and internationally, um, and I've and I've counseled uh, uh, people that want to set up nonprofits in their countries on how to do it and how to go, go attack those markets to to raise money, to create scholarships and opportunities and internships, uh, so that young people can come into the industry, can advance, can get jobs, and 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 thrive and stay in the industry. So that is super important to me, um, you know, um, and it's the most valuable thing I do, I think, really. Yeah. No, yeah. I, 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 I certainly appreciate that and, and all the work that you've, you've, you've done for industry, no, no doubt. Um, all right, last question as we wrap up here. Um, when do you think uh, New Glenn will fly? <laughs> oh, boy, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. You mentioned that I, I'm, uh, just this week. I think I'm going to get it. You know, so I'm, I'm potentially – it's interesting now. I used to sell New Glenn, and now I'm a customer for New Glenn. So, 
Uh, I'm actually going to get an update from those guys uh, later this week, and I'm going to see them in, in Paris uh, in a couple weeks from now at World Satellite Business Week. If I look online and I see the picture, because I've been, you know, I'm, I'm kind of two years removed now from Blue, so um, they got a, a tremendous amount of hardware uh, in that factory down in Florida, and they're uh, they're advancing quite well. Uh, so uh, you know, I'm hoping they'll fly. Uh, uh, you know, right now next year they're talking about flying uh, next year and. I would love to see that vehicle fly. Hopefully, maybe they'll invite me down now that I'm a customer. Uh, even though I'm not with Blue Origin anymore, I would love to see uh, New Glenn fly. Um, I'm rooting for those guys to succeed. Um, I still have a ton of friends there. My a lot of my team that I recruited in there. So um, I wish those guys well. You know, they're they're trying to do the right uh, thing and lowering the cost of access to space, opening up space to new markets and. Uh, um, that vehicle is tremendous. The design philosophy around it, um, safety margins they're building into it. I mean, uh, it's it's an incredible machine. Uh, different approach than SpaceX. I'll take. I'll, I'll, I'll you know admit to that. It's it's a it's a different. Uh, they kind of have SpaceX takes a little bit more of a fail forward approach. You know, you can see in the Starship development, and New Glenn is um, a little bit more of the uh, test, test, test. You know, verify all the things, test the system, and then fly as you test approach. And so. Uh, work for New Shepard. You know, all these programs take a bit. You know, they're monster rockets for anybody who's listening. <laughs> these are not easy things to design to. And even the small guys, I think, can tell you, uh, you know, launching stuff is a difficult, challenging, and, and as my old boss, John Evo Gal, used to say, it's a binary business. Either you put the satellite where it needs to go or you don't. Uh, there's not a lot of ambiguity in launch. So uh, it's a challenging thing. And, and when, typically when you talk about building something that is human-rated, human-capable, um, this is a different design challenge altogether, right? When, when you, when you watch something fly with a spacecraft on top, yeah, you're nervous, right? There's, there's a, there's a high nervous pucker factor, as we say, when you're, um, when you're watching human beings fly, you get a lump in your throat, your stomach starts turning to knots. It's like, it's something different when people are on top of the vehicle, right? So yeah, it's, uh, it's an extraordinary thing and, and, you know, making it safe and affordable is really the, the point here. So yeah, I'm rooting for those guys. Fingers crossed they fly next year. We'll see. Uh, I'll probably have more to, more to learn on that in the next few weeks. <laughs> as I, as I talk to my, my old colleague there, but I wish those guys well. Yeah. You're, you, you choose your words carefully, Clay, which I appreciate. So, no, uh, I, you know, it's all, uh, I'm not trying to be uh, coy about it at all. Uh, I, you know, it, it, you, People say all the time you fly when you're ready, right? Yeah, um, yeah which is exactly. absolutely true because it's it's not like one of these things where you know it's it's hundreds of millions of dollars worth of hardware at stake, right? Yeah. If, not, if you talk about the entire pad, and you know you don't want you don't want to have a catastrophic event. This is super important stuff that can set you back. So you know, engineers are going to try to drive down you know to every single you know uh, fault tree that they can to make sure that the thing's going to work and it's going to work properly and you've got ground systems and you've got, I mean, it, launch systems are complex system of systems, right? You've got guidance, navigation, control, propulsion, materials, uh, electronics, all of this stuff has to work in concert. And at the end of the day, you need to be going, um, you know, uh, nine kilometers a second, a second to break Earth's gravity. I always tell people the story, like you think about an RN5 as a, as a vehicle, it's about 780 metric tons sitting on the pad by mass, right? 90% of that is fuel, either solid rocket fuel on the big boosters or liquid fuel um, in the main cryogenic tank. And then about 8% of it is the actual structure of the rocket. You know, the metal, the hardware, the engines, all the systems that are on top. 
and less than 2% of it's the actual payload you're putting in the space. That's the rocket equation right there in a nutshell. When you think about it by mass, right? It's like just get like one point something percent into space. You need, you know, 98 point something percent to actually break Earth's gravity. It's a hard equation. This is why staging and reusability, all these things come into play. And so what, when, when people think about launch and it, you know, it, it has become, there's so many launch startups now, but it is a challenging, challenging thing to do and do it well and do it repeatedly right and so hats off to spacex and and uh all these other companies that have have launched and continue to launch rocket lab and others that are launching successfully it, it's a tremendously tough business to be in but it's super exciting right you get up every day and you're launching rockets there's nothing better than that well maybe launching a space station i think better than that no i well <laughs> there you go uh and yeah launching ro- launching a rocket is no doubt successfully very very difficult and and you know there, there's no question that the space station is not is not easy either so we're, we're we're looking forward to seeing starlab fly clay thanks so much for joining really appreciate it um for any of you guys listening um clay is very friendly so if you see him at a conference definitely stop him and say hi and i will see you clay in paris in two weeks <laughs> Awesome. I'll see you there, Mom. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. All right. Bye.